Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Personally, I'd probably do away with the ECB entirely and start again. The game, if it doesn't reform, is going to die as a national sport. Hello and welcome to Rainstock Play. Thank you very much for listening to this special episode. It's fair to say English cricket is in a bit of a crisis at the moment. Our guest today is someone who is shedding light on just how deep the roots of that crisis go. Duncan Stone is an author and academic. His new book, Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket, exposes an alternative social history of the game from its earliest days to the present and indeed the future. Duncan pulls no punches in analysing the role of major figures in the cricketing canon, as well as the ECB, in upholding a style of cricket which fails to represent or serve its recreational player base. After the Azim Rafiq scandal at Yorkshire, that conversation feels more urgent than ever. We think you'll enjoy hearing from his unique and well-researched perspective. Glenn and I will be back at the end to give our reflections, but first, our interview with Duncan Stone. Well, thank you um, again for joining us today, uh, Duncan. We appreciate it. Really looking forward to talking about your book. Um, first off the bat, uh, first question, would you mind just describing your work just in a, in a couple of sentences? As you well know now, having dived into it, I cover an awful lot of ground. Um, but the main thing I wanted to highlight was an extrapolation of the PhD, which looked at uh, how cricket in the south of England, recreational cricket that is, uh, split along class and cultural lines after the First World War and explain the process and the reasons uh, behind that process. And then, of course, I needed, if I was going to write a book, I needed to make that story about England as a whole, uh, with apologies to the other home nations, obviously. And one of the, the key starting places that you go from is this kind of 
traditional story very stereotypical that you have kind of industrial commercialized cricket in parts of the north of england and then you have the gentleman's game in the south and and you take issue with this traditional story you think it's, it's very kind of manipulative set out by certain people with an agenda can you just quickly run us through that and, and what you think is a more accurate social history of cricket it's like a lot of these things invariably the truth is somewhere in the middle isn't it um but what I discovered, uh, or what I, what the conclusion that my research led me to, is that the culture of cricket in England was essentially the same nationwide, uh, irrespective of class, up to uh, essentially the First World War. And but what had been happening? in the decades from the late Victorian and Edwardian period up to that point had been the recognition by the middle and upper classes that socially open meritocratic competition uh, threatened their position in society. You know, we talk of sport being the great social leveller. Now, if there's one thing that the middle and upper classes of this country detest, it is meritocracy. And what has been the mistaken, what a lot of sort of academic histories of sport have suggested in the past is that professionalism was the fly in the ointment. I think what my book reveals is that actually that was a red herring. Um, if I can talk about flies and fish and <laughs> mixing my metaphors. Uh, but essentially, it was competition itself that was the problem. Uh, now, the problem that the MCC had and the counties had uh, was that the game had become, to quote one amateur administrator, trapped by its own popularity. Uh, but at the recreational level of the game, where, you know, the paying public weren't so much of an issue uh, in the south of England, uh, particularly in Surrey, which is what I based my PhD on. The middle and upper classes were actually able, via a, an organisation called the Club Cricket Conference, to effectively ban competition. And from that point, the different regional identities of cricket, you know, these two stereotypes of, as you say, the urban, industrial, professional, working class north and the genteel, rural, um, you know, middle upper class south non-competitive South developed from that point onwards. And one of the really interesting parts of that in your book is is how you show that that divide between amateur and professional was always kind of arbitrary and deliberately used by the establishment, for want of a better word, to exclude certain people. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I mean, the idea, for example, that WG Grace was never making any money from cricket. Oh, he was making more money than pretty much everyone else uh, put together. Uh, so, yes, it, all, this banning of competition and the strict control of um, the professionals who are obviously invariably working cl class men, uh, this led to essentially the fetishization of what was presented as a philosophy of amateurism, where in fact it was an ideology uh, which was solely designed to justify the separation of the classes along these arbitrary, you know, titles, if you like. So 
obviously the amateurs who had invariably private incomes uh, could afford to play the game for nothing. They used that as a way of turning the culture of cricket, what we would still recognise as the dominant culture of cricket, against the working classes as a whole, in that if they were going to play it to any sort of standard, uh, they had to be paid. And by being paid, they sullied the very name of cricket. And there's a particular example. I, I can't remember what the name of the of the team is in your book, where um, players were given time off from work to practice, and therefore they were excluded from a competition. Oh yes, that was one of the. I, I that escapes me as well. But it was one of the military sides. Yes. So I think it might have been the Royal Artillery Football Club. Yeah, I think that's rather right. Rather than cricket club, were given time off to uh, train, and they were summer summer summarily uh, banished from the. Football Association Amateur Cup, whereas uh, university rowing crews who were given expenses paid training were still allowed to maintain their amateur status and compete in in rowing competitions. So, yes, I mean, as one of my interviewees said, it's good old fashioned Victorian hypocrisy. I'm getting into what the disaster that we've seen unfold uh, in the last couple of weeks in Australia uh, with the time difference. Duncan, I've actually had to sit through uh, most of the ashes, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> uh, because of that, obviously, naturally leading from such a, a moment of calamity for you know the national sport. Um, lots of people have been pointing out the increasing um, homogeneity of the England test team, um, something that's not new. We're all quite aware of this. Um, nearly all of the players um, are from a handful of private schools. Um, this is a culture, obviously, that your book deals with quite extensively. Um, what is behind this, um, uh, I guess, continuation? And in your opinion, do you think it's getting worse? Yes, I do think, uh, you know, the overrepresentation of the privately educated has always been an issue within certain sports, uh, you know, probably most notably rugby union. I mean, that's the whole reason why rugby split into two Um was because of class conflicts along those lines. Uh, but since 1979, I would argue that this situation across all aspects of British society has got worse. Uh, because what we've, know, what we've witnessed uh, is that uh, consecutive governments have been steadily hollowing out civil society. A lot of the pillars that enabled working class people to participate in society no longer exist. And that happened within cricket with deindustrialization and the privatization of previously nationalized industries such as coal. And that led to, uh, even in my experience at Surrey Police, uh, the end of workplace sport uh, and the selling off of thousands of playing facilities that were you know, valuable yet unprofitable assets. Uh, and this is to be doubly regretted because I think uh, the evidence suggests that workplace sport was probably the best example of multiracial sport in the country up to that point. That obviously has now all gone. Factor in the sale of over 10,000 state school playing fields. Uh, between 1981 and 1997, plus many thousands more since, then it's almost inevitable 
that uh, working class participation in cricket and other sports uh, is going to decline, or at least those who are lucky enough to go to schools with, you know, to take Eton as an example, their own boating lake, where it stands to reason that they're going to be representing Team GB at the Olympics, isn't it? Um, and then there was, of course, another factor which only dawned on me quite late on, and that was John Major's. So having slashed all these playing school playing fields, the government woke up to the fact that there was a crisis in state school participation in sport. So John Major, avowed cricket lover, uh, took it upon himself to uh, sort of revolutionise sport. But this involved the doing away of the sports council and most importantly its credo of sport for all so what his government then did consciously they turned away from mass participation uh, and just ordinary leisure uh, in favor of elitist sport i.e you know olympic gold medals so as much as cricket isn't an olympic sport we are faced with essentially a perfect storm where sports participation and advancement of working class kids is increasingly difficult and cricket being a time consuming and expensive sport uh, it's almost inevitable that uh, you know the kids you know i think it was harrow school which i mentioned in um in the book has six grass playing fields whereas the borough in which it exists uh, only has four i believe what only one of which is associated with a state school so you know do the math it's you know it's an accident waiting to happen but the sad thing is i would argue this is by design you know the people making decisions uh, you know in parliament and in the long run at lords I think a lot of this has been premeditated, regrettably. Absolutely. And I, I love that stat. I, I'm glad you said it because I was about to bring it up about, you know, the private school having more pitches in the bar. It's it's so ludicrous. It almost beggars belief. But <laughs> the fact is yeah, true. It's, um, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, this leads really this kind of topic leads nicely on to our next question. Obviously, your book talks um, about this culture war, which we're, we're touching on here, waged by critics, uh, crickets establishment against working class organization. The game, you know, right now, um, do you see things like paid subscription TV coverage? Uh, something you mentioned uh rising elitist ticket prices i know you talked about the capacity of grounds um how small they are in comparison to other sports um and obviously austerity on the playing field as you said you know mass privatization you know started decades ago continued throughout the coalition and beyond do you see all these things as, as an extension of this culture war oh yes undoubtedly i think um i mean i summed it up at the end of my sort of last answer really um this is a elitism by design and you know the, the sort of the culture war uh, that has been waged within cricket for more than a century has now created a legacy within cricket you know the mono, the sort of monoculture of the uh, I'm doing the little quote marks now uh, the quintessentially English game has become its own worst enemy Cricket is now an increasingly hard sell 
it's been away from the public eye in terms of free-to-air television uh, for 15 years now. Um, you know, the, the uh, generous donation of the uh, Men's World Cup final notwithstanding. So, yes, I mean, if you're a working class kid, you know, irrespective of where you're living necessarily, uh, and you've not been exposed to cricket for most of your life, then it's not relevant. I mean, as I said in a previous chat with someone, uh, you know, the Premier League has become the only show in town. And that's what kids want to be now. I personally was inspired by seeing, you know, Bob Willis, you know, in 1981, giving my age away there. Um, but whether the young generation today are ever going to have that same sort of inspiration is highly doubtful because so few people are exposed to it. So, yes, all of these things I mentioned throughout the book form this, what you know, as I say, this perfect storm of making cricket increasingly irrelevant into modern multicultural Britain. In some ways, the, the answer to some of the things that you're talking about there in terms of accessibility of the game, the answer to that from people like the ECB is more and more competitions like the 100, which they say will, you know, that's that's really the kind of short stuff that people want to see. That's what people can fit around their work and their schooling. And yet at the same time, what struck me reading your book is that if you like the old elite in cricket said they hated commercialism and wanted to keep it their gentleman's amateur game, the new elite seems obsessed with wringing as much money out of the game as possible. And yet neither of them seems to represent the grassroots and the actual recreational game. Yeah, it's we've swapped one form of elitism for another. So whereas, you know, Pelham Warner, you know, Lord Harris, Lord Hawke, those that generation of uh, Victorian and Edwardian gentlemen amateurs would want nothing to do with commercialism, I would argue they actively made the game less popular in order to just protect their own, you know. The club, first class cricket in England has always been run in the interests of a minority of subscribers. Invariably, these were the members of the MCC and the, and the county clubs. But what has happened, and you mentioned it there, you know, with the selling of rights after 1997 and the uh, McLaurin report uh, is that the game then served the interests of the subscribers of Sky. We've got the worst of both worlds. Again, as usual, the right path is somewhere down the middle. Uh, but for some reason, we're either getting one extreme or the other. Whichever it is, however, it means the game is exclusive rather than inclusive. So something's got to give. Otherwise, you know, and again, this is something that, you know, Roland Bowen and other historians have talked about, you know, for generations. You know, the game's always on its arse, isn't it? You know, it's, you know, it's on its deathbed. I, I do genuinely feel, uh, and Azim Rafiq, has, I think, has brought this more into focus perhaps than he realised is that the game if it doesn't reform is 
going to die as a national sport or or at least a sport with a national interest in this country yeah absolutely i think you know this overarching message especially in that final chapter um is that once you lose these fans it's very difficult to get them back right you've got so many other things to compete with you know not only the premier league but you know the increasing access to sports in america you know whether it's your american football whether it's your basketball um and you know a couple of, of um, other sports obviously growing um right now in the uk once you basically just throw that generation through through class and race-based analysis to the wolves then you, they're not going to come back that's that's a lost generation of, of of fans of players of everything else that that should make the game so great um you know t- touching on how to make this better you, you mentioned in the i think the penultimate page of your book that it's clear that the ecb like other british institutions is incapable of reforming itself something i think will and i would agree with um yeah. <laughs> If this is the case, um, what can be done instead? Obviously, the ECB, you know, it is still this, unfortunately, centralized core of power and influence for the game. What can we do? Are there ways to navigate it? Is that how, how, how can it be reformed? Uh, unless a government, it won't be this government, uh, unless a government actually stepped in and reformed, forced reform upon them. Nothing's going to change, I fear. Um, You know, the ECB, like other institutions in Britain, are very adept at, you know, moving the goalposts, you know, rearranging the deck chairs to make it look as if they're uh, doing something. Uh, And yet the status quo is maintained. I think... We're going to need uh, the supporters of the game themselves to step up here. And, you know, like AFC Wimbledon or, or, or even your club Brentford, you know, you need fan power to now at least take hold at the counties. And then the counties would, you would hope, have some sort of leverage over the ECB. But of course, they there's so many conflicts of interest within the ECB in terms of, you know, their commercial dealings and their relationship with the counties. It's 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 a mess. Personally, I'd probably do away with the ECB entirely and start again. But, you know, that's, you know, beyond rose tinted glasses, that one. The the short answer is it's very, very difficult. I'm not entirely sure, but I think. The supporters, the followers of cricket need to step up and try and engender some sort of reform, first of in their own counties um, and hopefully make them more representative of their constituencies. And then hopefully from there, the governing body will do the same. And we will have an England team that actually doesn't just represent us, but is actually representative of us you know it's it's an outrage that you can have in certain parts of the country almost two-thirds of recreational cricketers from a south asian background and yet we have all these white privately educated men representing us at a national level it's that it's pretty clear to anyone whether they follow cricket or not that that signifies a broken system but you know as 
you two are probably well aware from the current debates in um, in relation to, you know, what do we do with, you know, the county championship and how much or how little it is uh, responsible for this latest Ashes debacle. Uh, who knows? So, you know, this might sound a bit hubristic, but I'm really hoping that my book, if enough people of influence read it, for once in our lives, we could actually maybe learn from the games from our own history. But the problem that we've had up to this point is that the history, the orthodox history of cricket has been inherently false, or at least has promoted the view from the position of the people who are in power. So obviously I'm challenging that and I'm hoping by shedding light on you know, the inequalities that have long afflicted cricket, not just in terms of race, but in terms of class. Changes can be made. You know, if we look at how and why football became the people's game and why cricket lost its position as the national game, then maybe if we go back to the beginning and look at what made football popular in the first place and introduce that to cricket, I'd say for the first time, we might have a fighting chance. I think the fact that we're sort of wedded to this county model rather than, and this is where perhaps the the hundred has some merit, is, is that you could have cities or, I mean, I've, I've met through uh, a charity cricket club that I'm involved with, uh, some sort of South Asian entrepreneurs. And if they were given even a modicum of encouragement, they would throw a bucket load of money at creating their own clubs within inner city areas, you know, Birmingham, Leicester, Luton, wherever, where you've got, you know, this critical mass of South Asian talent and enthusiasm for the game. And to quote one of them, he says, we'd create a team of in 10 years that would be almost any county. That's how confident they are. And that's indicative of the talent that is going to waste in this country. The football model of the 1870s and 1880s, no matter how long ago it was, I think would provide a new model for cricket. It certainly worked. It turned football into a global game, the people's game. And I think that's what cricket needs. Just needs more people of different backgrounds to be into it. Yeah, it's interesting that you, that you mentioned the city identities with the 100, because Glenn and I argued about this last year before the tournament, that kind of on, on the one hand, yeah, no one really has any affinity for these teams because they're all completely invent, invented. If you're a Somerset fan, you're not going to suddenly support Southern Brave or Welsh Fire. But on the other hand, if you're trying to build... A, a sort of new form of cricket that is still has that grassroots appeal and, and taps into a slightly more modern identity. Probably cities are, are slightly more what, what people will identify with. I mean, I, I, I lived in Brixton at the time, so technically my local team was the Oval Invincibles. And I kept finding them extremely hard to support because, first of all, what, the Oval is not an identity. <laughs> it's not a thing. It's not a no. place. <laughs> um, and secondly, because the team that plays there is is Surrey, which felt a long world away from 
Brixton and Streatham and 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 the places that the lots of people around there are from. Um, Glenn, I, I wonder if you've uh, if you've changed your mind at all on this. No, it's it's a really interesting point, Will. And yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, Duncan, because I think yeah, there is there is some merit for that um, for. Uh, you know, looking at it through cities. But what I really like about what you've said today, Duncan, is like looking at it from, you know, the bottom up as opposed to the top down. I think the top down approach with these artificial, almost, CG, almost CGI generated teams and logos that the same designer had, in my opinion, smashed out in about a day's work. A-level that, stuff. Right, that, that's, that's how I felt. And I have been I have been won over. And I did disagree um, on, on the principal point with Will on a podcast about a year ago. But no, I, I think there, there very much is merit to it. But I think it has to be organic. I think think you know the teams the identities have to come from you know local communities themselves i think that's absolutely i think the hundred got it the wrong way around but i think yeah. between you know what we're saying today that there is a middle ground as you mentioned duncan where you can have these identities but but cultivated in a way that doesn't feel as i kind of mentioned kind of artificial yeah i mean if you're parachuting people from you know australia you know we're irrespective you know if you're parachuting shane warning at, at great cost <laughs> I mean, how, how's that really going to it's 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 wholly inauthentic. And that's why boring old traditionalists like me, although I'm maybe not as traditional as some people. I've just got no interest in the bloody thing, uh, honestly, you know, the main thing is, is to have some form of authenticity, you know, because if it's out if it's out of the back pocket you know if some marketeer has written it on the back of an envelope it's not going to fly no matter how much money you throw at it yeah and just following up on that duncan uh, i don't even know if there's a question here but i did think it was interesting how you know you've mentioned today and it was in the book that you know the t20 blast you know the, the, the classic <coughs> cliche if it if it isn't broken don't fix it you know record crowds and something i thought as a, as a fan i found it you know there are little tweaks in my opinion that could be done to the blast you know as a, as a football fan as well i hate it when uh, a game week for the premier league right is stretched over four four or five days over christmas break just to just to squeeze in you know broadcasting money and mm. in a way the blast i found it really tricky to follow i think a lot of us on the on the podcast found it hard to follow because there wasn't it wasn't kind of game weeks or days as such it was just spread again for, you know for sky's benefit there seemed to be a game every other night which even as a part as a fan you know not as uh intensely loving cricket as us but as a passing fan it's very difficult to keep track of who's playing who what's going on i think there are real simple things that could be done to the blast um to make it better and as a somerset fan you know it's there the tickets to this to this game are hot property it is really difficult if you're not a member again there's there's issues with that to get into games um so yeah it is in my opinion it is a really good competition and i think the ecb's desire to to look at something else shiny has just allowed it to fall behind obviously the ipl potentially even the big bash um you know i'm researching um your cricket in america so it's really interesting to see how major league cricket plays out but i don't think we have time to dive into that on a, <laughs> on a scale over here in north america and i think it is just fascinating that they've kind of turned away from the blast it works it's popular it, it, it is this magic that they're searching for this magic form of the game that's <laughs> that's in wide open view right yeah well as i say in the book i mean my personal opinion is that um the only reason they created the hundred is because they forgot to copyright T20. The ECB clearly have realized their mistake. They're jealous of the money that the BCCI 
and the franchises are making. And I think they created the 100 simply to try and replicate that success, except this time they owned the rights. It's again, as I said, it's not going to fly. But they've taken a very, very big gamble on the future of the game financially. Within your book, you're very critical, especially in that first chapter, right, of previous cricket writing. You've got Neville Cardis in particular, um, but also modern broadcast coverage, TMS. Um, I, I really liked in your final chapter how you discussed the very contemporary uh, and unsavoury um, disagreement, or you could say abuse of Jonathan Agnew towards um, Jonathan Liu uh, that played yeah. out um, in private and then in public. And I also really liked how you actually um, took some of these kind of posh white boy comedy books to task where everybody's failing at playing cricket and it's this kind of just this fun throwaway thing that we do for a laugh because we have time and money. And I really like that you didn't let the comedy books get away as well. They were also in your gaze there. Um, yeah. I guess as a, as, a, as a contrast to those, for you, what does good cricket journalism, journalism look like? What, what should it look like instead? Uh, well, I think we've got, we're very lucky at the moment. Whereas previous generations, uh, of journalists such as Neville Cardus were what we would call, you know, Laura Kunzberg, you know, client journalists. They basically towed the MCC's party line because they just wanted to be in the club. Uh, and by doing so over much of the last century, they papered over cracks that really should have been dealt with previously. And now, today, we're dealing with those cracks because the house is about to fall down. Um, in terms of modern contemporary journalism, we've got some great people out there. You know, I think the cricketer has done some great work, you know, and, and obviously in terms of Azim Rafiq, you've got to you've got to highlight George DeBell's work. I hope I pronounce his name right this time. <laughs> so he's probably the leader, but you know, Hugh Turberville's done some good stuff, uh, and Barney Rone and a few others. Uh, and you mentioned Jonathan Liu, of course, uh, you know, he's he's quite happy to uh, speak truth to power, which I wish journalists that deal with other aspects of our society were uh, more confident in doing. Because if we don't, you know, then, as I say, 100 years of, you know, the likes of Neville Cardus has led us to where we are now because they've been getting away with it for too long. So I'm hoping this current generation of uh, cricket journalists uh, and social researchers, you know, like myself and, and others. Um, you know, my mate Russell Holden's got a book out this week. Uh, you know, his his book will be as explosive, if not more than mine. Uh, and what we need is people to actually start listening and acting. I'm hoping, especially with the DCMS uh, and the Equalities Commission going on. Uh, I think his work, my work, and the work previous work done by people like Tom Fletcher, who was mentioned uh, during the uh, Azim Rafiq uh, inquiry, I'm hoping that our work will finally have some influence because we don't need any more inquiries. We know what the problems are. They've just been deliberately ignored for the last 30 years or more so you know let's start let's hope this 
good journalism, as you say, and good academic research actually starts breaking into, you know, the way the game is run. I wanted to ask you quickly about other influences on, on your work in terms of how you approach writing the book. There's obviously um, a quote on, on the back cover from CLR James. Um, and I thought it was interesting reading your book, the way that you start with your kind of personal journey with cricket did remind me a lot of, of, of how he starts Beyond a Boundary. Um, and I wonder about your kind of what were your key influences going about writing it and, and whether CLR had a had a big role in your thinking? Oh, I think I might disappoint you and uh, <laughs> some of your listeners now. Um, what folk need to maybe understand about me is that I, I, I've had a very uh, idiosyncratic uh, career. <laughs> and as I spell out in the introduction of the book, you know, my sort of autobiographical stuff, you know, I ended up going to university at 32 years of age, straight into a master's without ever doing A-levels even, let alone an undergraduate degree. And then having done sociology of sport at Leicester, it wasn't until seven years later that I started uh, the PhD in history at Huddersfield. Mike Marcuse and to a certain extent, um, I'm looking at my um, pile of books here, <laughs> uh, certainly Mike Marcuse's Anyone But England was a motivation. Um, CLR James started off, I think, as something I enjoyed. And yet, as I spell out in the book, I think he falls at the, at the last hurdle because like many of the people he was having a, a pop hat, he was an aesthete, he was an aestheticist, uh, and he pulled his punches in the end, I think. Uh, something that Marcuse and, uh, you know, Derek Burley in his first book, The Willow Wand, didn't do. So I suppose they're the two books. But broadly speaking, I've actively avoided theorists and <laughs> yeah, the more academic. And that was, apart from accessibility, that was why I was always planning on publishing this as a quote unquote popular history rather than an academic history. Thank you so much, Duncan. This has been a superb conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it and wish it could go longer. Um, there's a final question. Uh, we're going to ask all of our guests this. Um, if you could change just one thing about English cricket, what would it be? Oh, well, that's well, I know what the resulting I know what I want. I want the England cricket team to be full of, you know, to reflect British society. So that's what I want. Um, obviously, as we've discussed over the last sort of 40 minutes or so, there's a lot of things that need to happen <laughs> in order for that to happen. So there's no one thing um, except, all right, okay, if abolish the EB, ECB. There you go. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. 
that was Duncan Stone, author of Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket. His book is available now if anyone wants to read it. That was a really fantastic discussion. Thank you so much again to Duncan. Yeah, thank you um, so much for joining us, Duncan. That was a really, really enjoyable discussion. Um, from the page of notes I've got next to me, I did um, I did circle, Will, um, a line that, that Duncan mentioned about talent going to waste. And I think that really gets to the heart of the problem. I thought it was a really poignant line. I think it encapsulates a lot of the issues we're seeing right now. Again, you can we can talk endlessly about the failures of uh, privately educated white uh, test cricket team that we've just seen collapse uh, in pretty... Um, ridiculous fashion in Australia. And I think, yeah, as, as as Duncan's research quite wonderfully touches on, there's just this really fundamental disconnect between, you know, the people who play cricket in the UK at the, the grassroots level um, and then the, the funneling, you know, the funneling of just the quote unquote, you know, elite um, into the into the test side. And I think as for the ECB to do something about it um, is almost, uh, you know, at almost this point, uh, hoping against hope because we the ECB has had so many opportunities to do something. There has been reports, there has been inquiries. And, you know, Duncan's book goes into that in depth. And I would, would thoroughly recommend um, listeners giving it a read. And I think the problem is at this point, the ECB is so complicit that we need to move beyond it. And I, I really liked what you mentioned um, in the conversation, Will, you know, about um, more organic kind of um, leagues um, springing up, maybe turning towards them. The hundred obviously gets to this um, gets this kind of inherent contradiction between the ECBs, like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna open up cricket to as many people, get as many diversified cricket, and then as as we as as we talked about just a few minutes ago, it has this kind of top down almost you know it's weird paternal air about it where it's like well these are the teams these are the artificial teams they've all got these same similar same logos you got these you know similar make-believe titles as you as you critique the oval invincibles what does that mean what, what community has any connection to that kind of wording or imagery um no one so i think again you know duncan talked about it it's it's got the change here has got to come from the fans from the players from the from the bottom upwards as opposed from the top down and i think that really gets to the crux of the problem and yeah you know it, it's 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 a great line but you know abolishing the ecb i think yeah i mean it, it is beyond reform i think that's something that um that, that, that we've said before on this pod maybe not in those direct terms but you see what's happening now in parliament it's these conversations have happened before for decades and decades and decades and again nothing has changed and yeah it's it's deeply frustrating but i'm just delighted that there are books such as duncan's and you know he mentioned another one as well a couple of others that are springing up in in real opposition to these establishment narratives that all they have done is reduced access to the game and it, i think i still think it's a complete disgrace that you can't turn on freeview uh regularly and, and and watch cricket and as i mentioned to duncan uh, a little bit earlier you know when when you lose those fans you don't get them back there is no magic oh we'll put the final on uh, channel four well who's going to watch the final because they haven't seen any of the group games or the knockout games or any other you know um international matches of one day cricket it's, you know where, where where is that you're not going to suddenly magic up some fans who who haven't been there before so i think yeah obviously instead of resolving it the ecb clearly is at the root of this problem and i think that needs to be confronted head-on by the cricket community Absolutely. And I, I loved his idea of, of a sort of cricket FA Cup. But again, absolutely needs to be grassroots and requires there to be some kind of mechanism to properly fund all of these grassroots clubs. Because I would love nothing more than a giant killing between Brixton 11 beating Surrey at the Oval. N nothing would make me happier. Uh, but as Duncan says in his book, 
the only things that the ECB ever funds is things that can generate a profit for them. I think the first point that you said is is really important. That that anger at waste of potential is something that um, Tom Brown and Taj Butt both have said, who are both quoted in Duncan's book. And you can listen to them uh, as well on our Yorkshire special. We interviewed both of them on the podcast back in November. That's English Cricket's Racism Scandal, What Happens Now. You can find that on our podcast feed. And I think for me, the most important thing that comes out of Duncan's book is that a lot of us have, have always kind of intuitively criticised this this extremely aristocratic form of cricket but lots of people have responded that that's what cricket is and in fact what what Duncan shows us is that a different kind of culture a different history has always existed a more democratic and more meritocratic form that's always been there yeah and and just saying what I was thinking with that you know FA Cup comparison with the with the Super League right in in football we did see a similar in a way attempt to you know centralize um, the best teams in Europe to basically lock other teams out of it. Again, a closed shop league, right, where where the best teams in Europe would just play each other endlessly at this Groundhog Day of sport. And to an extent, uh, I think that's that's what the, is a, a way you could you, you could look at the um, county championship in the sense that there is no jeopardy. And again, that's a word that Duncan used a couple of times that I think was really interesting. And yeah, there is there is obviously you can just play bad cricket all season without any real repercussions to that. Yeah, sure, there might be some, you know, first division, second division, uh, relegation there. But yeah, it's still basically in many senses in a very American sports sense, a closed shop. And I think having a, a much bolder vision for cricket, a more imaginative vision for cricket, opening it up to, you know, not only fans um only fans but to to you know other clubs let's get other clubs involved the hundreds isn't going to solve that but i do think it was really interesting how that city city-based approach to some extent which you which is as we mentioned earlier you may have won me over towards a little bit yeah that may be the only kind of crumb of sense we may get from the hundred but but apart from that as as i just mentioned you know this top-down approach is, uh, is going to be redundant and it isn't going to work in the long term. Sure, you might get some decent viewing figures um, in, in the very short term, but how are you going to sustain sustain these games? How are you going to sustain these brand new kind of make-believe teams? Uh, you probably won't. And that's, it's only going to, and it, it's something that Duncan did mention in the final chapter of his book was that, you know, the, the ECB's reserves with the, for uh, a lot of uh, factors, but COVID being one of them, are dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And it's only going to get worse. This is, this is something that isn't going to fix itself. Um, and, yeah, I think we need to empower local communities to take ownership of the game and uh, and play it and and envision it the way that, that, that we want it to be seen. Because if if we just wait for this, you know, magical savior at the ECB to do something, you know, your Giles Clarks or these again, just these, these farcically, um, you know, again, post aristocratic um, individuals to to lead England to glory, that's obviously not going to work. And we, we we all need to be aware of that. So yeah, I'm I'm thankful that Duncan's doing this this great research and yeah it was it was a real pleasure to have these robust conversations with him absolutely and, and it's a really important time for duncan's book to be published because we we, we said all of this kind of stuff when we, when we first covered the azim rafiq um issues and, and the scandal at yorkshire that this is a, a time that it's, it's become blindingly obvious to everybody involved that the ecb is not capable of fixing these problems Thank you once again to Duncan Stone for joining us. As Duncan said, making our voices known as fans and players is really vital to getting the culture we want. Let us know your thoughts. You can continue the conversation with us on Twitter at RainStopPod, on our Discord server at RainStopPlay, or email us at RainStopPlayPod at gmail.com. Thanks again to Glenn. Thank you, Will. And thank you to Duncan Stone for joining us.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.